If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 557. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. That's mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. Get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. Also, of course, you probably or hopefully capitalized on my Black Friday deal, but I am running a deal. If you're getting this before Christmas 2021, I am running a deal there, 25% off, a little less than what you're getting at Black Friday, but still a great deal. If you want to pick up those last-minute gifts, McClanahan Academy courses make great gifts. They're never out of stock. You get lifetime membership to every course you purchase. That means download uh, everything else, right? So it's a great deal. And if you use the coupon code CHRISTMAS21, you get that 25% off. So go out there, click on the class, put in the coupon code CHRISTMAS21. Great deal, 25% off. Also, you can get my books. Those also are great gifts. Just uh, go out to anywhere you buy books online. Just do a search for my name. You'll come up with all my books. The latest are the Jeffersonian Tradition and the Southern, uh, Southern Scribblings. And so get those for those stocking stuffers. Also, if you click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, you get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. I appreciate all the support. We're wrapping up the year, and I know it's been a, a difficult year for a lot of you. And um, it's, I mean, look, the last 18 months have been difficult for everybody, uh, but we're trying to get through this. And hopefully, this podcast has helped you do that. And if you like the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally and share the podcast around on social media. Send me those show requests. Now, I mentioned last week that I was going to be at a point where I would have no video. So if you're watching the YouTube, you'll see there's no video. Well, that's because I'm at that point. So there's no video, at least for the next couple of weeks. Um, we're just going to go audio only. Hopefully, uh, by early 2022, we'll be back at it. Um, I will probably podcast even after Christmas this year, at least an episode or two, fresh content. And so we might have video for that. We'll see. But for right now, for this week and, and definitely next week, I uh, will be uh, audio only. And then maybe following Christmas, uh, we'll have um, uh, the video back. I might even podcast a time or two in that week leading up to Christmas. So that would also be audio only. But Hopefully you're having a great week. We're kicking this week off. Coming to you a little late because, uh, again, all the things that are going on. But um, I want to talk about an article that a listener sent me. This is a listener-generated episode about the Supreme Court. And this goes back to the summer. But it's certainly something to think about as we're looking at the court now heading into a decision on Roe v. Wade. And the left is very upset about this. They're not certain what to think about the Supreme Court uh, wading into an area that they think is 
just unimpeachable, right? I mean, this this decision that was made in 1973, it's now settled precedent. Everybody knows it, so you can't get rid of it. Well, I've told you over and over again on this podcast, whether you're on the left or the right, if you put your faith in the Supreme Court, you're bound to be disappointed. You see, what really needs to happen with all these people, all these leftists, they need to understand that the real path forward is decentralization. And even if the Supreme Court came out and, and overturned Roe v. Wade, you know what still can happen? Your leftist utopia, I'm talking to you, California or Washington State or Oregon or Massachusetts or Connecticut, your little leftist utopia can still have whatever laws you want to have on that issue, but it would allow states like Texas and Alabama and Mississippi and South Carolina and Georgia, all those states, it would allow them to also do what they want when it comes to this particular issue, and it would be the real design of the U.S. Constitution. But I want to go to an article that was published in July, it's an op-ed, July 2021, it was published in the LA Times and by Nicholas Goldberg, and it's the title is, Does Biden Intend to Curtail Supreme Court's Powers? So the left, very uneasy about this now conservative-dominated court, is thinking, hmm, what if we cut the powers of the Supreme Court? Hey, I'm on the right, ostensibly, people would say. And I still want to cut the powers of the Supreme Court, whether conservatives are dominating the court or not. Well, why? Because the Supreme Court is way out of whack. Now, the focus of this piece is judicial review. Now, if you take my Originalist Papers course at McClanahan Academy, or the series, the sequence, all four, you'll notice something interesting about that. There's not a whole lot of discussion about the power of the Supreme Court to invalidate laws. It was something that was discussed in the ratifying conventions. In fact, Patrick Henry brought it up, and he was reassured that if the federal government passed laws that were unconstitutional, the Supreme Court could invalidate those laws. And he said he certainly hoped that would happen. So it depended on what state you're in. If you read my Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution, I talk about this. It depended on what state you were in in 1787 and 1788 whether you thought judicial review was a good idea. Generally, the states that had it had proponents of it in the Philadelphia Convention and in the ratifying conventions. Those states that didn't have it didn't want it. And it's not an explicitly delegated power to the court system. However, we know that the court was there to be a referee between the states. And so if there are things that states are doing, I mean, what, who's the final arbiter in this? Well, there were people that said the state courts can do this. The state courts can decide if something is unconstitutional or not. They certainly can. But what happens if you have this state court say it's unconstitutional and this other state court say it is constitutional? Then where do you go? And that becomes the issue. You have to have a final arbiter in that case. Or do you? Or can you just say, this law is invalid in my state and it's valid in your state? Well, that would, create a, that would I agree, create a big mess because... At that point, uh, you would have federal laws applied in some states and not in others. And so we have to have a final say on it. So this is the enforcement power when it comes to the Constitution. Who gets to enforce the laws of Congress outside the president? The president has to execute those laws. But who gets to say if these laws are constitutional or not? And if one state, this is where... 
Calhoun would come into play. If one state said, well, that law is unconstitutional, does it invalidate it for the rest of the United States? If, if South Carolina said that law is clearly unconstitutional, then do the rest of the states have to abide by the decision of a court in South Carolina? Now, what this would do, ultimately, if you had that model, it would mean that the federal government would have very little to do because, essentially, they would go into commerce and defense, and that's it. And that commerce clause would be severely restricted. So everything else would be left up to the states, including things like Roe v. Wade. That wouldn't even be on the docket. But maybe we need a referee. So the question comes, well, what do you do there? Should we have some type of body? Should we have some type of, should we have some amendment that says this group is going to be appointed or elected, however you want to do it, and their job is to review federal legislative decisions, federal laws, and say this is constitutional or this is not. And if that body decides it's going to, it's, it's constitutional, then it stands. Not, and you could have these people be elected, not a bunch of people on a federal court, which are appointed politically. So you could have something. It could be a conference of the states. It could be something like that. But I like this piece because it gets into some of these issues that are really troubling for America. You see, what happens in America is we have a one-size-fits-all policy for everything, and that creates a big one-size-fits-all mess. So, read this piece. Is it time for a dramatic change in the way the Supreme Court does business? No one really expected that question from the new 36-member commission President Biden established in April to study potential court reforms. He created it to fulfill a campaign promise, but most people assumed it would focus its sights on relatively limited proposals, such as whether term limits should be imposed on Supreme Court justices and whether the number of justices on the court should be increased. But instead, at its first public meeting on June 30th, the commission came roaring into life determined to raise a bigger, broader, and even more controversial subject. Does the Supreme Court wield disproportionate power that needs curtailing? Now, what's interesting to me about this, let me stop there, is that there are leftists on here that think the court is so out of whack, when in reality, the only way the left has ever been able to get any other legislative agenda through is through the courts. If it wasn't for federal courts, you wouldn't see most of the issues that the left can run around saying, we got this or we got that. It's all been done by the courts. The only reason, and I mentioned this last week, the only reason people don't do things is because they're worried about being sued. Even if what they would do is so benign that any reasonable, rational person would say, there's nothing wrong with that. But you know what? They're worried about being sued, so they won't. This is the EEOC and all the things that the 14th Amendment wrought with later legislation, even though that's all been interpreted incorrectly. In particular, the commission zeroed in on what's known as judicial review, the awesome power the nine justices of the court have to strike down laws passed by Congress or the states if they're deemed to conflict the U.S. Constitution. Let me stop here on that paragraph. This is a layman's mistake. Goldberg has no clue about original intent. He has no clue about how the Constitution was ratified, how it was argued during ratification. The Supreme Court does not have the power to strike down laws passed by the states unless they violate Article 1, Section 10. 
And in other words, the states can do just about anything they want as long as they don't violate their own state constitutions. But that would have to be a state court that would knock those down, not the federal courts. You see, this is the real problem in our system. If the Supreme Court was simply reviewing federal legislation, you could make a case that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Because if the Congress does pass an unconstitutional law and the president signs that law, then you would need some check on that. And if the court was there, it could do it, right? I mean, th this was actually said by many people. Well, you got to have some check. Now, others said the states can do this. The states will be powerful enough to check it. But regardless, if you're going to have judicial review, the only time the Supreme Court should hear a decision that deals with the states is if there's a question if it violated Article 1, Section 10. That's it. Nothing else. And if it doesn't violate Article 1, Section 10, the state is in the clear and should never be dragged before a federal court. This is the precise reason we have the 11th Amendment to the Constitution, state sovereign immunity. But you see, that's the dirty little secret. The states cannot be sued without their consent. Even though the Supreme Court has narrowly interpreted that, it doesn't matter. The states create the entire apparatus. That's the thing that people don't realize. But, if we're just talking about federal law, okay. In fact, let me go back to the Philadelphia Convention. John Rutledge of South Carolina said that a federal negative of state law ought to damn the Constitution. And it was voted down nearly unanimously. So, no one who drafted the Constitution, and I can say that probably less than maybe 10% of anybody in the ratifying conventions would have agreed to a federal negative of state laws. Now, I say no one. The Patterson plan, the small state plan, actually had it in there, but that issue was also, that part of it was also highly objectionable, and it's one of the reasons why it didn't get through. You see, no one wanted the federal government or I should say the majority didn't want the federal government to negate state laws. And when you go back and look at Tench Cox and you look at his Freeman essays, which are in my originalist papers class, and you go back and look at those and what he says about what the federal government can do, what the state governments have to do, you'll find that most of what now the federal government sticks its nose into it had no business sticking its nose into legally. So the piece continues, I, haven't even, I hadn't even realized that subject was open for discussion. I was wrong. Quote, the Supreme Court is an anti-democratic institution, says Nicholas Bowie, an assistant professor of law at Harvard Law School, in powerful testimony to the commission. I don't know if it's Bowie or Bowie, which one he goes by. But think about this. This is a leftist. He's saying the court is an anti-democratic institution. The irony here, of course, is that all the things that Bowie would want are only there because the Supreme Court made it that way. You see, the left loves the court until they don't control the court. This is the real issue. They don't control the court right now, so they don't like the court. They're using all the arguments that conservatives have used against it, not the anti-democratic stuff, even though... You have conservatives say, these are nine unelected justices, you know, unelected lawyers, politically appointed lawyers, whatever they are. Nine unelected ones. 
who are determining the fate of the United States. These are arguments I've heard conservatives make. Now, the left is making the same arguments. You know where I've heard that before this is going to happen? Oh, yeah. John C. Calhoun said this is exactly what happens in his disquisition. Whoever's out of power is going to use the Constitution as their shield. They're going to say you're doing all these bad things and wrong things. And then when they're, when they're back in power, oh, what are you talking about? We don't care about that. Yeah, it doesn't matter. As soon as the left would be back in control of the court, they wouldn't bring this up at all. They wouldn't say it's anti- no, it's not, it's not anti-democratic. We had elected people appoint these people, you see. That's democratic. He argued that the court had a long history of invalidating laws designed to expand political equality and had been silent at best on the dispossession of native tribes, the exclusion of Chinese immigrants, and the persecution of political dissidents, among other subjects. So this is, I mean, this anti-democratic institution has caused all kinds of problems for lefties, except their entire legislative agenda would not exist without the federal courts. Bowie said it would be a good way to do away, or Bowie, whichever one you want, would be a good way to do away with the power of judicial review. Samuel Moyne, a Yale Law School professor, also criticized judicial review and proposed various reforms to weaken it. Constitutional law is now more openly politics by other means than some once believed or hoped, Moyne said. To non-lawyers, this stuff can sound like legalistic mumbo-jumbo. But over the years, the Supreme Court has dramatically shaped the direction of the country, for good or ill, depending on your perspective, by striking down scores of federal, state, and local laws. In many cases, these laws were passed by Congress, signed by the President, and supported by American voters, only to be overturned by nine unelected justices, or in the case of a split decision, by as few as five. I mean, this is all true. What he just said in that paragraph is 100% true. The infamous Dred Scott case in 1857, uh, the court struck down the entire Missouri Compromise, Congress's attempt to prevent the spread of slavery into new territories, as unconstitutional. Well, it depended on which part of the territories, the southern part or the northern part of the territories. I can make a case that uh, that law, I mean, Congress has the power to regulate slavery, or do they have the power to regulate slavery? I mean, that's a whole other question. In 1905, the court overturned a New York law that set a maximum 10-hour workday for employees. In 1954's Brown v. Board of Education, the court ruled that laws permitting school segregation violated the Constitution's promise of equal protection. More recently, the court has struck down state laws banning homosexual conduct and same-sex marriage. In the Citizens United case, the court threw out campaign finance restrictions it said violated the First Amendment, thereby opening the door for unlimited political expenditures by corporations. In 2013, it tossed a critical section of the Voting Rights Act that protected voters from racial discrimination. So there is a litany of stuff that's come into play over the last 150 years. Some of it those on the left would support. Some of it those on the left wouldn't support. Some of it those on the right would support. Some of it those on the right wouldn't support. His point, I think, is well made. You've got, it depends on your politics, You've got a case or a dozen or more that are not you're not going to like. And it's because the Supreme Court has gotten involved in areas it had no business. And he says, who gave the court this extraordinary power? The founders, the Constitution, God? Actually, none of the above. The Constitution says very little, it turns out, about the Supreme Court, other than that there shall be one. Basically, the justices took the power of judicial review for themselves in 1803 in a famous case called Marbury v. Madison. But that's not true. I'll say that and I'll explain in a second. Which arose from a dispute between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson over presidential appointments. Well, 
No, not over John Adams. His whole history right there is wrong. The whole history is wrong. First of all, the very first time the Supreme Court ruled a law constitutional was in a tax case, and Alexander Hamilton argued in favor of the law. This is um, the very famous Hilton case. That was the first time the court ruled that a law was constitutional. So the first time it invalidated a federal law was 1803, but it already practiced judicial review before this point. And the dispute was not between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. It was between Marbury, who was appointed as essentially a justice of the peace, and James Madison, who was then Secretary of State. In fact, the real dispute was between Marbury and John Marshall, who didn't recuse himself from the case. He should have, because when Marbury didn't get his appointment, it actually went to John Marshall's desk. He left it sitting there. Thomas Jefferson comes in and says, oops, I knocked those all in the trash, and Marbury didn't get his appointment, which he needed for the salary. So he's going after the federal government because, hey, you said I was going to have this job. I got the salary. I need the money. And James Madison then became the uh, defendant in the case because um, it was a situation where he was now Secretary of State and he had to execute those. And Jefferson's position was, well, they never weren't executed when John Marshall was Secretary of State. Well, they're just void now. I didn't have to put those into practice. So then Goldberg says, in a unanimous opinion, the court struck down a section of law passed by Congress for the first time. And Chief Justice John Marshall set the high court on a path to become the supreme final arbiter of which laws violate the U.S. Constitution. Interestingly enough, that was the last time the Supreme Court invalidated a federal law until 1857 in the Dred Scott case. That was it. It took over 50 years for them to do it again. What they did is uphold federal law. They knocked down state laws. But federal law? And you see, there was always a question about this. The state laws were off the, off the table. Nobody thought they could do that. Federal laws, maybe. But this is an interesting situation. The piece continues, Some people think judicial review is a great check on legislative overreach. Some find it undemocratic because it usurps power that belongs with the other two branches of government. Challenges to the court's power seem to come every 50 to 75 years, Harvard Law School professor Mark Tushnet told me in an interview. They happen in times of political turmoil or division, or when the court appears too partisan or to be blocking the popular will. President Lincoln questioned the court's power in his first inaugural address, and President Franklin D. Roosevelt did as well when it blocked his New Deal policies. The Constitution is subject to interpretation, said Tushnet, and when the court chooses one interpretation over another, people ask why its interpretation should prevail. Well, uh, it's not really open to that much interpretation. I mean, this is the whole point. All you got to do is go back and look at how it was argued. That's not really open to interpretation. This is the Constitution that they said we'd be getting. Now, if you want to go the other side and say, well, this is what the other side said it would be, those are the people that lost. You see, one of the worst things that happened is that the proponents of strong national power have used the arguments essentially of the opponents of the Constitution to buttress their position. That means that they're using arguments that failed because they were told that's not true. This is Joseph Story's entire position. Goldberg continues, I come down in favor of keeping judicial review despite many bad decisions, Plessy v. Ferguson, Korematsu v. U.S. The court has been mostly 
an articulate defender of the rule of law, and has often protected the rights of those who need protection. It has not been way ahead of its time or adequately removed from politics, but it has been an obstacle to rash congressional action. It's hard to see what other institution could fill that role. Well, how about the states? That would be good. Of course you could have that fill that role. On the other hand, there are ways to modify judicial review. You could, for instance, require a supermajority vote of seven justices out of nine to invalidate a law passed by legislatures. How about the states aren't up for judicial review at all, unless they are violate Article 1, Section 10? Then you would see none of this stuff happen. Or the U.S. could emulate Canada. There, the High Court may rule a law to be in violation of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but Parliament may reenact and enforce such a law anyways, as long as it declares it is doing so notwithstanding the Court's decision. People might be less frustrated with the Court if it was easier to pass constitutional amendments. Many wanted to do so after the Citizens United decision, but the barriers are so high that the Constitution has been amended only twice in the last 50 years. Of course, lowering those barriers would itself require a constitutional amendment. I doubt judicial review is going away soon. It will be an awfully radical reform proposal to emerge from a relatively toothless commission. The commission holds its next meeting on July 20th. Again, I'm I'm looking at this many months out. But still the discussion is a healthy one. It serves as a warning to the justices to adhere to constitutional principle, restrain their personal partisan opinions, and defer within reason to Congress or risk losing power. And it is a reminder to all of us that American democracy is neither perfect nor beyond improvement. Now, that last sentence is actually true. It's 100% true. Beyond improvement, nobody's saying that. Uh, Is it perfect? Absolutely not. In fact, this was even said during the process by which the Constitution was ratified. It wasn't going to be perfect. It was going to be the best they could do, though. Why? Because they had discordant interests, and the federal government was only going to have limited and delegated powers enumerated powers. That was it. All legislative powers herein granted, but not powers that aren't granted and not the powers of the states. And if they're not granted, you don't have them. That's the whole point. I want to know where the Supreme Court has the power to do, or the Congress, I should say, any of the federal government has the power to do most of what it does. It doesn't have the power at all. Why is there even any $1 spent on flooding in New York subways? That's just stupid. Because that dollar could come from California, or that dollar could come from Georgia, or that dollar could come from Iowa. Well, I would dare say the people of Iowa, if they wanted to ride on a New York subway, if they went out there, they could pay for it with New York. They could pay for it in New York, right? New York could pay for these things, and they don't need federal dollars. Same thing with roads in another state whole host of things we could get into. But this is where, I mean, I think this, this piece is actually good. People are talking about this. I like that. Whether it's on the left or the right, people are actually talking about the fact that we have a broken system, and it's broken because of too much centralization, too much federal power. We need less of that. And that's the whole key to improving the general government. It is a general government, not a federal government. We need to get the language right. And that would also go a long way in improving where we are. All right. So again, we've got uh, now a few weeks of audio only. Hopefully you'll stick it out. Use that coupon code at McClanahan Academy. Get that Originalist Papers uh, sequence, that series, that bundle class. Or get my American Constitutions class. Get more of this because this this is one of the reasons why I do what I do. 
And I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 